You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning. If you can, uh, remain standing as we read God's word. Our text this morning is Genesis 49. Genesis 49, we're going to go from verses 1 through 28. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, and he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe that let loose uh, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you by the 
Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's hear it again for our sound team. Thank you. (laughs) What we read is history. Certainly all of God's word is a record of history. History is a record of past events. And it's vital for us to see that where we are in light of history, because here's the thing, we tend to absolutize our moment, don't we? We often read the headline, this is the worst, and you could fill in the blank, pandemic, inflation, this is the worst heat wave, this is the worst crime wave, rate hike, invasion, you name it. It's the worst thing to happen in so many years, right? Now, I'm not here to downplay the severity or the real effects of what I just mentioned. We're, we're really affected by these things. And we need to, as stewards of creation, and as we're able to and called to, we need to work to alleviate and to resolve some of these issues with reason and with wisdom. And we need to help those affected with care and compassion. But the point is, our sense of history, and thus our perspective, our our outlook, our understanding of life really is oriented around what is happening now today. And far too often, church, it's our moment that shapes our hopes. It's our moment that shapes our hopes. And that is at best short-sighted, and at worst, it's destructive. So given our moment, given the time in which we live, what do we have to look forward to? What is our hope? And where do we place our hope? I want us to see that although many things are a-changing, in some ways are good, in many ways for the worst, and it's at an alarming rate, I want us to remember that it wasn't always better back then. Keep in mind, it wasn't always better back then. Consider the history that we read as presented in Genesis chapter 6. You remember, it wasn't much long after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden that humanity populated the earth. And here's what the Lord said. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. That was the state of man, not far from where they were created in perfection. 
But God, even in his destruction of the earth through the flood, he was gracious in doing so. Because in his grace, he saved a remnant, Noah and his family. And so hope was given. Hope was given to God's people, especially in the most dire of circumstances. So it's this understanding of history, church, and our place in it that we could begin to develop not only a wiser perspective, it's not like just what Solomon said, nothing is new under the sun, but here's what we need to know know and learn and believe and trust in, that in good times and bad times, God is constant, and he never changes, and he alone is our hope. That's the goal for us as we started this Series in Genesis, you remember, low these two and a half years ago. Um, the truth was um, being an, under assault. And the truth was being as, under assault in Genesis chapter 3. And it's been so ever since. But here was our prayer as your elders as we, gone, as we go through Genesis, was that we would see truth. We would see truth in seeing God more clearly, and we would see truth, therefore, in understanding ourselves and then seeing the world more clearly. In God's light, do we see light? It's in God's light that we see light and are transformed by it. That's our prayer for you throughout our time in Genesis. So here we are, nearing the end of our time in Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. And we're witnessing right now the close of the patriarchal age. We had the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you remember, is primeval history. And then we have from 12, 12th chapter of Genesis on till now, the end of Genesis is the patriarchal age. And this is the time when the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come to an end. Now Jacob, also known as Israel, he's on his deathbed. And Jacob was well aware of this moment. Even as he traveled to Egypt 17 years prior, you remember he described to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life, my sojourning. And as you recall from that sermon, uh, German, Jacob, I like combining words that don't make sense. In this case, from that sermon, Jacob, he had a keen understanding that his life was in fact a sojourn. In other words, this life wasn't all there was. And we saw last week in chapter 48 the announcement that Jacob was ill. And Moses describes Israel as having to summon his strength to sit up in bed to perform the adoption ceremony of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he's conferring upon them the blessing as sons of Israel. And now we have the continuation of those last moments of the patriarch's life. Look at verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. It's future looking. Verse 2, he says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. Now, here we have our first point of application. It comes right away, but it's very simple. Jacob, who's lived almost 150 years, he knows that his time is coming. 
and he has prepared his burial site based on honoring his family line and most significantly to exercise his faith in God that God will fulfill his covenant promise to him and his offspring. And so here's what he does. He instructs his sons to bury him there, and we'll see that in the verse afterwards. But we also see that he has something important prepared for them. These are these prophecies, these blessings, these oracles of God. And the point is this, is that we ought to exercise the same wisdom when preparing for our death. We should have our affairs in order, such that our family can not only mourn well, but can benefit from our instruction, both in life and in death. And in so doing, even in our death, we could be faithful witnesses to our family. But here in verse 1, it's the destiny of each son and their very future that Jacob is eager, eager to give. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, in these verses, it's, it's a beautiful poem. It's Hebrew poetry. And the language here is it's sometimes difficult to discern. And the immediate fulfillment of these sayings, unlike Joseph's uh, dreams, they're going to come to fruition not in their lifetime necessarily. In fact, most of them, like Jacob said, will be in the days to come. But it's here that we need to see that God's promises still are most powerful because they come true beyond the lies of those they apply to. This speaks to the eternal nature of God and his word. And it's important for us to see that these prophecies also are a mixed bag. And some seem to be curses, some blessings, and some a mix of both. Now, Jacob, in giving these pronouncements, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak these oracles of God. And so these words are written for us as well. And one thing we're going to see is the way of the firstborn, the way the world sees the firstborn as inheriting all the power and the benefits of the family line. That's the way it was back then, and it still is today. Look at Prince Charles and Prince William. William has to wait his turn, right, until his dad, Prince Charles, inherits the throne. But that's not the way God operates. We've seen this pattern in Abel before Cain. We've seen it in Isaac before Ishmael, Jacob before Esau, and just as we read last week, Ephraim before Manasseh. And what's interesting here is that the actions of Reuben in verse 3 have already determined his fate, so to speak. And this is what we also need to take note. It's the providence of God working in and through the agency of human will, whether good or evil, ultimately to accomplish his purposes. Look at verse 3. Jacob's speaking directly to Reuben. You are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You remember how he had committed adultery with Bilhah. The steadiness 
and the integrity required of leadership was not automatic with the firstborn. It's not automatic. And it was Judges 5, verses 15 through 16, that revealed the lack of resolve, the lack of resolve that Reuben's tribe had to join the fight in Israel's years of conquest. And so his sin in committing adultery in the past resulted in him no longer being heir to Jacob, but it also portended of things to come when Israel became a nation. Now the second set of brothers here, Simeon and Levi, they're also characterized by their murderous actions as they avenge the defilement of their sister Dinah. Instead of relying on the justice of God, they took matters into their own hands, not to satisfy justice, but to satisfy their anger and their bloodlust for revenge. Listen to the judgment of Jacob, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. Not out of justice, but in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Now, if you recognize Levi as the root of Leviticus and the Levitical priesthood, you'd be right. The fulfillment of Jacob's judgment in God's prophecy is that the tribe of Levi is not allotted land like the other tribes. And Simeon does not have land named after him, but he's located, his tribe is located in several cities that are scattered throughout the land of Judah. And as Jacob concludes, he says, I will divide them in Jacob and I will scatter them in Israel. Now, if you noticed with Reuben, Jacob addresses him directly in first person. He's also going to do the same thing with Judah, this time with a blessing. And this was foreshadowed, if you guys remember, through the redemptive way in which Judah interceded for his brothers. You remember specifically with Benjamin. And rather than see his father suffer through the loss of another favorite son, Judah was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his father. So here we see in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouches as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? You could see a little bit of pride here in Jacob's last words regarding Judah. Ruler and leadership language. It's depicted here in Judah being victor over his enemies as well as his brothers honoring him in verse 8. That's evident. But also in verses 10 through 12, we have messianic language. Messianic language that's fulfilled first in David being king, but ultimately fulfilled in Christ, coming in the line of Judah to rule and to reign upon his resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 10. 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, all the peoples. At the end of the age, our age, as we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, the beautiful truth is made plain and visible where the only one who is worthy to open the scroll, Jesus Christ, he's revealed as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He has conquered. And then we see verses 11 and 12 here. They speak of the lavish abundance found in the kingdom reign of Christ. We move on to Zebulun. Zebulun receives a blessing which at face value seems to pinpoint his location. But in actuality, if you take a look at the map of Israel during the kingdom years, you can see that in the back of your Bibles or online, because I know a lot of us have the app. Zebulun's territory is actually landlocked. Think about that. But the truth of Jacob's blessing is that the trade and the commerce necessary for the ships that came in through Sidon They occurred at Zebulun because Zebulun was on a major trade route for the rest of the region. They were like a hub of commerce. And so the fulfillment of being a haven for ships actually came true. If you take a look at Deuteronomy 33, verse 19, it reveals that they, Zebulun, draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Now we take a look at Issachar. Issachar settled in fertile land, as is written in Joshua 16. But here's the thing. His tribe failed to drive out the Canaanites, as they were instructed to do. And so they had, quote, been made to do forced labor as a result. They were captive to those who God had instructed for them to drive out. Dan. Dan's prophecy is very much a description of his name. As you guys know, Dan means judge. He was named by Rachel as Dan, judge. Or actually Rachel's uh, servant. Now the Old Testament in Hebrew professor Alan Ross, he says it like this, Dan shows another disparity between calling and achievement. Dan was to provide justice, which he did in matters of his own tribe, But the tribe chose treachery and like a snake by the roadside. And in the time of Judges, the first major practice of idolatry appeared in the tribe of Dan. Now look in verse 19. It says, Gad here, according to the Hebrew, has three word plays on his name. And in the the word play is the Hebrew sounds like, Gad sounds like, Raiders, and Raider sounds like Gad. Trust me on that one. (laughs) And because they settled in the land east of the Jordan, they were often subject to attack, but they were able to defend themselves, often being being victorious. And that was indicated by raiding, quote, at their heels. You can see that in the verse. And that means that they were attacking those who were fleeing. Asher. Asher had settled along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, And it was certainly rich, and it was fertile, coastland. But one note on the word yield, as we see here about Asher. It says, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal 
delicacies. It certainly sounds positive, and in one way it is. But some commentators say that the tribe failed to expel the Canaanites, again, what Dan failed to do, and coupled with their exposure by being uh, invaded from the coast, they became subject to providing delicacies for invading kings as well as enjoying the blessings themselves. So again, as I mentioned, it's a mixed bag, some of these prophecies. And then in verse 21, Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Naphtali was a tribe that settled in the northwest shore of Galilee, and it too was marked with rich natural resources. In fact, if you take a look at the map, the northern part of the land actually had no boundary to it. And so the reference to a doe let loose. And although there were differing opinions about Jacob's prophecy about Naphtali, all of these point towards the tribe's prosperity. And that seems to be enforced by Moses in Deuteronomy 33, verse 23, where Moses records, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of blessing of the Lord. Now, we come near the end, the final two oracles of Jacob. It's saved for his two favored sons of his favored wife, Rachel. What's made quite clear here is not only the favor and the blessing of God upon Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, but even retells of his trials and his suffering. Take a look at verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him and harassed him severely. And yet, note how Joseph didn't waver from his integrity. He kept his eyes on the target. Verse 24, yet his bow remained unmoved. Unmoved. Now here's what's interesting. It's not that just Joseph benefited from his integrity. He did. It's not that he benefited just by being raised up to second in command of the most powerful empire on earth because he had unique gifts. He did. But what's remarkable is that Jacob does not even mention that in his blessing. Not that he didn't understand that God had done to preserve his family by bringing him down to Egypt. But here's what Jacob did. He ascribed to God all the glory and gave him all the credit. Look at verse 24. Jacob says, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It was the hands of the mighty one who made Joseph's hands agile and steadfast. It was the shepherd who guided Joseph in all his wisdom. And it was the stone of Israel who was unchanging and was the true source of his integrity. And here in the following verses, it's God, his father, the God actually of his father, who will help and bless Joseph through his sons, through the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Like Judah's prophecy and blessing, the phrase bounties in the everlasting hills in verse 26, that refers to the ultimate fulfillment and blessing in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. 
I sit down, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Finally, the last oracle, Benjamin. It's not so much a flattering article, excuse me, oracle, but that really depends on how you see it. Take a look at verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Others have said that this alludes to King Saul, Israel's first king. You guys remember, King Saul was intent on destroying David upon his anointing. And also in the New Testament, Saul, before he became Paul, was breathing hatred of Christ and his followers. He was like a ravenous wolf. However, some others have commented that Benjamin's description also points towards the military victories in the early part of Israel's history, and that's described in Judges and First Chronicles. Perhaps a misbag depends on the way you look at it. But in the end, verse 28, verse 28 reveals to us both the certainty of God's word through Jacob giving hope to his sons and the future of their nation. And also, it provides a depth of meaning for us. Ultimately, though God's ways are past finding out, he gives us his word. He gives us his word to know that his grace is sufficient for us. Look at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. What we've seen is a description of the surety and the certainty of God's word working in and through our lives and the distinct personalities and the choices that we make. It's an amazing thing. We're not automatons and robots. We're created as individuals with a will and a personality as only God can do it. Now, all of this, Jacob's life and his blessing upon his sons in the last breath is within the framework of God's plan and his purpose. And although there was and is and will be continue to be sin and circumstances are far from perfect, there is hope. There's hope. And Jacob recognized this. He knew that what God was going to do in and through the lives of his sons and their tribes, he was waiting for something greater. Jacob was waiting for something greater. And that was the hope that drove him. And that was the hope that he had to look forward to even in death. Church, hope is powerful, is it not? Hope is what we live on. It's what drives us. Think about when Abraham, he was commanded to give up his only son, Isaac, and he was driven by his hope in the promise of God because the Bible says, as he reasoned that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him up from the dead. That faith led to a hope that drove Abraham to do what he did, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Now here too, the sons of Israel were given these blessings also as a hope in the future because it would serve as an encouragement for them for their lives in Egypt. Because guess what? They would never get to see the promised land. They would die in Egypt. But as we look back at these verses, here's what I want to point out. I want to point out that the very structure of the passage, we're going to see the central point of what, or rather who, Jacob places his hope in. Now, the structure that I'm talking to or talking about is called a chiasm. What is a chiasm? Well, chiasm is is named after the Greek letter chi. And any of you fraternity or sorority people, you know that the Greek letter chi looks like the letter X, does it not? So if you take one half of the letter chi, it looks like a sideways V. Looks like that. Now what that means that if you have a four-line passage, for example, the introductory line and the last line would reinforce each other. It would repeat. And the middle two lines would mirror each other as well. Does that make sense? You want an example, right? Of course. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. What's the first line? Bless the Lord. Second line, O my soul. Third line, and all that is within me. Fourth line, bless his holy name. First line, bless the Lord. Last line, bless his holy name. The middle two lines, O my soul and all that is within me. That's a chiastic structure that the Bible was written in in many places. Now, the scripture, as I mentioned, is arranged, and it's analyzed in chiastic form, and here's the reason why. Because in this case, the writer, Moses, he wants us to see important points in the written record, both in the beauty of its structural arrangement, but also in the significance of the point being made. The point being made is the truth that God wants us to know, and it's a truth that God wants us to believe in. That's the point of the passage. Now again, I mentioned in Hebrew thought and poetry, repetition is used to make a point. And so in this case, if you think about, there's a point in the middle where we have the passage here, and we're going to take a look at it. If you look at Judah in verses 8 through 12, These are the realities of God's rule and his reign. It's the promise and the blessings made to Judah in verses 8 through 12. And notice, they're mirrored with Joseph's blessings in verses 22 through 26. The blessing of prosperity and abundance. Now here's another thing to notice. In previous mentions of the sons of Jacob, They've been usually arranged according to Leah and then Rachel, Bilhah, and then Zilpah. So here between the two blessings, we have Judah at the beginning and Joseph at the end. We have the blessings of the Leah's and Rachel's servants, Zilpah and Bilhah. In other words, they weren't necessarily the wives that he loved, but they were his wives who bore him his sons. But they're close 
to the center of the passage. And that must have been an encouragement to them as they heard this. Why? Because they weren't given as much favor as Judah and Joseph. But here's the deal. Because their hope is not in their status as favored ones, and their hope was not in what they could do according to their gifts, but their hope, just like Judah and Joseph, their hope too is in God. And their hope is in God who is the very salvation that he gives. And that's the point of the passage. That Jacob, in conferring blessings upon his sons, passing them on to their posterity, he says himself in verse 18 that his hope is in the salvation of the Lord. Look at verse 18. It stands alone there for us to see. He says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Now, the first question in the New City Catechism, it asks, what is our only hope in life and in death? Any of you familiar with that? What is our only hope in life and in death? The answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that hope is made true and real only by salvation in Christ alone. Acts 4, 12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name other than the name of Jesus. His very name is salvation. It means God is salvation. Yeshua. And that's the very word that Jacob puts his hope in. Verse 18, I wait for your Yeshua. I wait for your Yeshua, O Lord. In life and in death, Jacob has at his core the very hope that he needs for his very salvation, the promised one, the Messiah. In our salvation, what does this hope bring? Our salvation. What is this salvation? We're saved not only from our sins, which is the idea of deliverance, salvation. We're saved not only from our sins, but we're also saved from God and his wrath. And we're saved to God being blessed with the righteous robe of Christ so that we can actually enter into his holy presence. As Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, for our sake, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter exclaims this. He, 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 he pronounces a huge blessing at the beginning of his letter in 1 Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. He has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Like God in using Jacob, as, as one commentator says, God is using Jacob as his covenantal instrument to give the destinies of his sons through blessings and cursings, judgments and promises. Church, so too, God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to give us a living hope. He gives us a living hope because he is our living hope. And also, like the blessings of God through Jacob were intended to give hope to the sons of Israel during their time in Egypt, how much more through the blessing of salvation for us as born-again believers is our living hope? How much more through our salvation in Christ is our living hope? Not tied to physical or material blessings, not tied to geography, but tied to inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. <coughs> Excuse me. But, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Boy, that wasn't much better. Sorry. Sorry. In this life, church, much as the mixed bags of blessings and cursings of the sons of Jacob, we too have tension within ourselves. Do we not? Do we not? Paul, no stranger to the turmoil within our born-again selves, he cries out, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Oh, wretched man, that I am. Can you relate? And therein lies the conflict as believers. Therein lies the conflict as believers. The psalmist asks several times throughout the Psalms, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And what does he answer? Hope in God. Hope in God. However, there are times, plenty of times, where we need help in discerning why we are cast down. Why are our souls in turmoil? Perhaps we're struggling through a life issue involving sin. Perhaps there's a conflict with someone near and dear to us that is unresolved. Perhaps we find ourselves disappointed over and over again. What we may very well be experiencing is the reality and the consequences of misplaced hope. Misplaced hope. You remember, hope is powerful. It keeps us going. It keeps us going until whatever it is we hope in fails. Money and investments, politics, dreams, recognition, our spouses, children, our resolve, our relationships and friendships, our careers, our health. Where do we place our hope? Those are all good things. 
but they're not our ultimate hope. Now, I mentioned in our introduction this morning that times, they are a-changing. And things don't seem to be getting much better. As Eomir says in Lord of the Rings, hope has forsaken these lands. Or so it would seem. Or so it would seem. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Where, or rather who, we place our hope in does make a difference. It makes all the difference in the world, church. I want us to hear the words of the gospel in whom we have our living hope. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 17. And I want us to notice the triune God at work in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Why? That we may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. God wants you as his child to know what is the hope to which you have been called. Furthermore, he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the might, the working of his great might that he worked in, and here it is, when he raised him from the dead. The resurrection is everything. The resurrection is our hope. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, listen church, not only in this age, but in the one to come. In the one to come. Nothing beats that. Nothing. This is our hope, church. This is our hope, not as... We hope it'll happen. But this is our hope because it will happen. Amen? Amen. The song we're about to sing, the lyrics say this. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you alone have called us, have saved us, and justified us through your son, Jesus. And by your spirit, we have now 
a guaranteed inheritance, sealed until the day when Christ will come again for us, his church. We pray that we would continue to grow in our faith and trust in you. You are only hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.